to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar and a very special guest. But for now, hello, Akil. What a special guest. Tell them about it. And this episode more generally, Andy. Yeah, so it's, it's a special episode for us in many respects. I want to explain why and how. But uh, just to, to give away the big surprise, our, our guest today is the great Bob Woodward, and I'll be introducing him in a couple of minutes with some, some details. But first, let me just welcome you aboard, Bob. Thank you. So uh, why else is it a special episode? Well, today we're embarking on a new era for America's Constitution. We're marking Constitution Day today, um, which when we're taping this. Of course, on Constitution Day, uh, Senator Robert Byrd, as we've discussed, requires that all uh, institutions of higher learning that receive federal funds do something related to the Constitution. And in that spirit, we're starting a, a new educational venture um, with America's Constitution. We're very excited to announce an exciting opportunity for our listeners who are uh, judges and attorneys uh, to obtain CLE, that's Continuing Legal Education Credits. We're partnering with the New Jersey Bar Association to help you earn 1.2 New Jersey general credits just for listening to this podcast. And even if you're not admitted to practice in New Jersey, CLE reciprocity rules generally apply. As long as you're admitted to practice in the United States somewhere, you should be able to earn credit in most states. You would, if you're not in New Jersey, just contact your state CLE board for more information on reciprocity with the New Jersey CLE. This is not to say that you may not have reciprocity, but rather the way that you, uh, that you get the credit may be a little different in each state. But every, every state will have this in common. Starting with today's episode, I'm going to read a different code during each podcast. About halfway or so, give or take, through the podcast, we'll read the code. And to earn credit, this is what you do. You go to podcast.njsba, New Jersey State Bar Association, .com. You follow the directions, and you enter very small information. You pay a processing fee. And the New Jersey State Bar Association will issue you a certificate of attendance within two weeks. So very, very simple. Podcast.njsba.com. And we'll put that information in the description of the show, and you'll see it again and again and again. So very exciting for a number of reasons. One is that it's a form of validation for us that this podcast is meant for everyone, that it is an educational uh, enterprise, and that it's a public service. The podcast is still free. The fact that you, you know, might have to pay for your uh, CLE is something you'd have to do anyway. And again, doesn't change the fact that the podcast is free. So more about that um, in subsequent episodes. But we're starting today with this episode, your CLE is available. Okay, now let's move on to, to the, uh, the meat of the matter. And let's tell you a little bit about our guest. Bob Woodward is the greatest reporter of all time. He's an associate editor at the Washington Post, where he's been since 1971. Um, the undoubted highlight of his career was his appearance on America's Constitution <laughs> two years ago as one of our first guests. And in order to get some notoriety, he's decided to come back. Um, so he's a member of the Yale College class of 1965. And uh, he taught journalism at Yale in a, for a couple of years in the last decade, a number of years in the last 
decade where, uh, and Akil and I had the honor of auditing that. Uh, after Yale, he spent five years in the United States Navy and was discharged as a lieutenant. Soon after that, he began his reporting career, and while at the Washington Post, he shared in two Pulitzer Prizes, first in 1973 for his coverage of the Watergate scandal with Carl Bernstein, and then in 2003 as a lead reporter for coverage of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. He's authored or co-authored 22 books, all of which have been national nonfiction bestsellers. 15 of them, by my count, have been number one national bestsellers. Um, his most recent books are Peril and the Trump Tapes. This latter book um, earned a distinction for Bob, uh, which is not actually unique. Um, he was sued by Donald Trump for publishing the interviews uh, without compensating uh, Mr. Trump. Um, this week, Bob and his publisher, Simon & Schuster, moved to have the case dismissed in Manhattan Federal Court. Um, but because of the pendency of the litigation, I'm not going to ask Bob about that. But if he decides he wants to say something, he's welcome to. A couple of testimonials. Bob Schieffer of CBS News said Woodward has established himself as the best reporter of our time. He may be the best reporter of all time. I say he is. And uh, Gene Roberts called the Woodward-Bernstein-Watergate coverage. That's the He's the former managing editor of the New York Times. Maybe the single greatest reporting effort of all time. And we could go on and on, but let's instead hear from our great friend and a great American, Bob Woodward. So thank you, Bob, and welcome back. Thank you. So let's talk first about your most recent book, well, one of your two most recent books, Peril. At the end of the book, Peril, you, you end it with the statement, Peril Remains. When you wrote that, did you think that, it, that following the events of January 6th and the second impeachment and everything else, that we might be facing a, a second Donald Trump term with any likelihood? I, mean, I always thought Trump was never going away. He has a, a certain resilience with his base, as we see now. No talking to my publisher, Simon & Schuster. Uh, they thought a year ago he was going to go away. I just, uh, having written three books and done the, the audio interview, spending uh, nine hours talking to him the last year of his presidency, uh, he's he's got the, the secret sauce for creating a, a sense of plausibility about the things he says that are not true. And there are just so many of them uh, we now talk about the post-truth uh, era in a, in a sense that there's no truth. Uh, I, of course, think there is. I think uh, we will have the standards of journalism that they will apply to our, our politics increasingly. In other words, uh, what we know and make judgments on, is it based on information from firsthand witnesses. Uh, Akil, with all of his law background, uh, and you too, Andy, understand that the potential validity of somebody who is a firsthand witness, somebody who's a participant, contemporary notes, which are have a, a power in journalism and law, and also uh, the documents themselves. And I think that's what we're 
relying on more and more, and I hope so, not this idea that we can concoct a, a version that really satisfies emotional needs of politi some politicians and lots of voters. So in, your, in peril, you talk a little bit about, you know, January 6th, of course. Um, you talk about it more from a reactive point of view. In other words, it, it, it doesn't, you don't talk about planning for the, for, you know, you don't talk about the, the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys in any great, you know, detail or anything like that. But um, have you come across any information since then, or maybe that wasn't part of this book because that wasn't your focus, that uh, can shed any light on the events of January 6th beyond what we've, you know, read? Well, the best evidence are, is the prosecution of, you know, the charging of really a thousand people. I mean, imagine getting a thousand people to do the same thing at the same time. Uh, it almost never happens. Uh, I think the January 6th committee in the House did a remarkable job parallel to the Irvin committee in Watergate, uh, really the gold standard of digging into what we were, I was trying to talk about. Uh, what's the basis? Witnesses, participants, contemporaneous notes and documents. And uh, so in a, in a way, you, there's not much more to learn about uh, January 6th, believe it or not, unless uh, Trump comes through uh, with the confession and says, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. This is uh, what I inspired. Uh, and that's not likely to happen. Well, I think, you know, you know, we've done some episodes recently on the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and questions of whether or not Trump is disqualified from the ballot. And one of the, we haven't gotten into the specifics of Trump that much, but it, it's, it's fairly evident to some people that in order to do that, you may have to have some more direct tie um, of Donald Trump to those events. So, for example, you just said, well, you know, it's maybe he won't confess to it, be, it being something that he wanted, you know, or that was inspired by him. But in fact, even if we granted those two things, that might not be enough. Um, the, we might look for some actual planning, like did he have any communication with, with or with or did one of his surrogates communicate with the Oath Keepers or or the Proud Boys or people who we know were organized on January 6th. Have you come across anything that would indicate anything like that? Uh, I, I have not, but I, I think uh, January 6th, we need to treat it as history. And uh, Trump is a much more serious political threat right now than even he was on January 6th, and that we need to uh, find a way to address that and examine it. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to go down too many roads here, but there are just lots mm -hmm. of roads with Trump. And uh, it's, uh, I, I think it's Chris Christie, uh, one of the candidates uh, against Trump, now Republican candidates for the Republican nomination, says so much of 
his critique, and I think the critique, legitimate critique of Trump is about his conduct. And his conduct uh, is something that I think the, the most ardent Trump supporter, if they could look at it in a clear-eyed way, would say it does not fit with what we need in a president. I know you quote Bill Barr and, uh, at one point as uh, saying to, to Trump um, something to the effect that uh, his supporters agree with many of his policies, but they can't, but but they can't deal with the fact that he's a complete asshole. I think is the expression that that he used in in, in addressing uh, the president. Well, that um, being an asshole doesn't disqualify somebody for the presidency. <laughs> Well, and of course, you're, you're an expert on the presidency, having covered presidents for so long. And in many ways, it appears that sort of Nixon and Trump kind of bookend your career, don't they? Well, there there's so many similarities. You, you could line up uh, all kinds of issues uh, about what happened 50 years ago with Nixon and then what has happened with Trump. And there's some astonishing, important similarities, and many, many differences. Well, let's let's talk about that. I'd like to explore that. Um, you know, Nixon at the time, uh, you know, you read all the president's men in the final days, he seems like a very, and I think you may have thought of him this way at the time, as a very singular threat. Um, uh, there hadn't been an impeachment in 100 years, but now it's 50 years later, and now we've had Donald Trump. So when you look back at, let's start with Nixon, um, do you do you see him um, as, you know, as singular, as different from other presidents, not just Trump, but uh, but other presidents in the interim in in his, uh, you know, the way that he may have posed a threat to the uh, to the government or to the to our system of democracy. Well, that that's a, a large question. What I I really think uh, Senator Irvin, who uh, ran the Irvin Committee, the Senate Watergate Committee, again, one of the gold standard investigations by the Congress, uh, in the final report that Irvin wrote about Watergate, he added, and uh, or he asked the really important question, why Watergate? And his answer was the lust for political power by Richard Nixon, blinded to ethics and law. And if you line that up with Trump, I think it's the exact replica. It is the lust for political power and this this blindness to law and rules. And lust is, a, is exactly the right verb. Uh, and you see it in so much of Trump and what he did, and he wanted to do it his way. And uh, I think the other element here, I don't want to go on too long about this, but in trying to understand the matchup between Nixon and Trump, uh, as you may recall, the day Nixon resigned, uh, he said, one of the most remarkable things I think a president has ever said. He's resigning. Uh, 
it, it gave a farewell speech, had his wife and daughters, two son-in-laws there, and Nixon is listing all of his grievances then, but he then turns to the camera and says the following, always remember others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. What Nixon, whether he fully realized it or not, uh, is saying is the hate is the piston that destroyed him and his presidency. We see the replication of this political hate from Trump. One of the interviews I did with Trump, he's going through, um, this is uh, last year of his presidency. I'm down at Mar-a-Lago and he had a screen that uh, Scavino, his internet guru, brought in and they played a video of Trump's State of the Union address the year before, but there was, they didn't have the the audio on. They had just strangely hyped up elevator music and the camera pans. And I'm watching this and Trump standing right behind me. And on comes uh, Bernie Sanders and Bernie's just listening, you know, who knows what he's thinking. And Trump says, hate, see the hate. Same with Elizabeth Warren, same with uh, Kamala uh, Harris. Hate, hate. And it's baffling. Yes, maybe some of these people hated Trump, but you can't see the hate in that. But but what Trump did, he infected himself with this poison that Nixon 50 years earlier identified. That's fascinating. And I think in, in peril, you portray, you know, Joe Biden very differently, um, although he's, you know, intolerant of uh, he, he wants to free himself of Trump. He doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't seem to govern in, in, the, in the same manner, at least according to to your book. Um, so would you say that Nixon and Trump's temperament, um, you, you pointed out that they have a lot in common with each other, but if you take the other presidents that you covered, would you say that their temperaments are apart from those of Nixon and Trump, that that's what separates the two of them? Yes. I mean, all, all of the other presidents that I've written about, uh, from Nixon really to Biden, so that's 11, that's... You know, uh, that's almost uh, 25% of the presidents we've had. Each have strengths and weaknesses, but they're uh, not like Nixon and not uh, like Trump. And you get into the, the, what Nixon did in his sabotage and espionage campaign against the Democrats. It got him elected in re-elected in 1972. He won 49 states. This was all secret, secret money, payoffs for silence, uh, organized cover-up, obstruction of justice. It's stunning once 
it all uh, came out. And this was before the election, and he won. Everything Trump did in terms of the claim that the election was stolen from him uh, was done after the election. So, it, and of course, Trump lost. That didn't work. But it worked for Nixon. That's, that's something that uh, needs to be pondered. Can you conduct a secret campaign uh, financed with dirty money and, and the dirty tricks and the espionage and the sabotage? I mean, it was just brutal. And get away with it? Well, Nixon did. Uh, Trump did it all after the election and uh, and failed. I mean, there's a, a very interesting article in the New Yorker by a Harvard Law professor uh, who's, who said uh, that if you look at the actions of Trump and uh, what he's what Trump said, we came close or he came close to breaking our democracy. I couldn't disagree more. He, he did not come close to breaking our democracy. He left the White House. Uh, of course, he said, he, and still says he won, but he, uh, he, he failed. Uh, he may have broken the Republican Party, uh, but uh, he... Has, he has not broken our democracy. And what, what is stunning about him is he, his, uh, his failure to quit. He just keeps at it. Well, I think that uh, there's a lot there. You know, um, Akil and I are, are very interested in the, in, in the presidency you know, sort of structurally, you know, as a constitutional institution. I mean, uh, after all, this is a podcast about the Constitution, and you being an expert on the presidency, this is this is very, this is fascinating. I've done lots of reporting. I've uh, interviewed and dealt with lots of presidents, uh, particularly Trump. But the closer you get to it, the the more you realize there is there are volumes to understand that I don't yet understand. Well, I think you, you put your finger on a lot of things in, in your comments just now. So one thing that you mentioned was you said that, you know, that Nixon, um, that his campaign of, uh, you know, dirty money and dirty tricks and et cetera, et cetera, won him the election in 1972. I think a lot of people, you know, the, think of Watergate incorrectly as a failed burglary followed by a cover-up, and that's it, okay? And that's what, you know, but you're saying, no, this is part of a pattern of, of behavior that, that undermined his entire presidency. And, and, uh, and I remember in, the, in All the President's Men in the book, and then in the movie as well, um, there's a scene where I think it's uh, Hal Holbrook says, uh, you know, as a deep throat, he, he says something like, they wanted to run against McGovern, they're running against him. You know, they, they, you know do you think that, something to the effect of, do you think this was all an accident? You know, that the, the, the things happened the way they wanted it to happen. 
Exactly. That was the strategy articulated. They realized uh, Senator Muskie was the strong candidate and uh, they haunted him and uh, simple and complex, dirty tricks. But uh, Muskie said when he lost the nomination afterwards, said there were all these strange things that happened uh, that were these dirty tricks and they can seem trivial, like Muskie's having a rally and somebody sends 200 pizzas there and there's no one to pay for it. And you, you can disorient a candidate or stealing the shoes that <laughs> Muskie and his staff left outside their hotel room. And this, that was an era when you could leave shoes out and somebody would come and shine them. And, the hired Nixon saboteurs gathered them all up and put them in a garbage bag and threw them in a dumpster. And so if it was a short campaign trip or any, there no, there's no second pair of suit of shoes. And so again, it, it was the psychological warfare of, stealing some of his uh, official stationery and putting things in there of having Muskie accusing other candidates of sexual improprieties. And it's just kind of, hey, and I talked to the people who in the Muskie campaign. It was just like, what's going on here? Of course, those things individually might seem, you know, somewhat trivial, but when they, but I think they... Uh, I think the point here is they add up to a pattern of whatever it took, they would have done. Would you say that's a fair statement? Yes, and and um, you you look at the history of it, and the Senate Watergate Committee looked at all of this, and uh, it it was very organized. A, a leading saboteur for Nixon was Donald Segretti, and he hired other people and handed money out to people to do things. And uh, it was very, very artful. Again, Senator Irvin asking the question, what, uh, not just why Watergate, but what was it? It was an effort to destroy the process of nominating and electing a president. And it succeeded. You're depicting uh, Nixon as effective in his various ways, whereas Trump, you're saying, was ineffective because he, first of all, he's doing it after the election and he doesn't overturn the results and he has 50 fair lawsuits and, and the whole thing was, you know, in front of the Four Seasons, uh, you know, next to a porno house or whatever. I mean, the whole thing was, was almost a spectacle of uh, comedic if it weren't so tragic. But, but... You know, when you have Nixon as effective and Trump as ineffective, Nixon party turns against him. And ultimately, that's how he that's why he has to resign. Barry Goldwater and so forth. Whereas Trump, when it came down to it, um, he's not he's impeached, but he's not you know convicted. And now he's an overwhelming favorite to uh, to receive the nomination of his party again. So why is it that the now one that the ineffective, uh, you know, conspirator is uh, is supported by his party and not 
Nixon? Is it because we live in a different time? Well, or I perhaps think it, is it, it certainly is a different time. And as you point out, the party, Republican Party, uh, had a real spine when it came to Nixon and the revelations of the criminality exemplified by Barry Goldwater going to Nixon on uh, two days, uh, this, this was August 7th, 1974, and telling uh, Nixon, uh, you have in an impeachment trial in the Senate, which was inevitable, uh, at least they thought at the time, and uh, Goldwater told Nixon to his face, said, you, you have only five votes. You, you would need uh, 37 to not be uh, thrown out of office. You have only five, and one of them is not mine. The next night, Nixon announced he was resigning. He realized that was an accurate count. Andy, I was just going to jump in. Bob so modestly disclaimed, oh, I'm not an expert on the presidency, but I just want to remind uh, the, uh, the audience what he said earlier, which is that he's covered personally, you know, a quarter of the people who have um, occupied the office. Here's one thing, Andy, we've been talking about. It's a very powerful office, of course. Um, it was designed, um, as our audience knows, sort of um, for, by and for George Washington, and, and there's a lot of threat that it can pose to the system. Most of the people who want to be president, they um, they have very strong wills. And, and Bob says, actually, oh, being even an asshole is not inconsistent with a kind of uh, presidential um, temperament. Structurally, one interesting thing is, of course, Nixon was a lame duck because he had already been reelected. And so people could kind of go um, after him and he wasn't going to be able to run yet again against them. And Trump isn't. So is that structural feature also an, an important difference? But the other thing just is, I just want to highlight the presidency is the most, so there's, there's structural issues like the re uh, eligibility. But then Bob is always very interested in the personalities as well. And, he, and they come across in, in all of his books. And Bob has a fundamental, I'm going to be blunt here, Midwestern decency about him. And he's kind of shocked that there would be these kind of dirty tricks and all the rest, because that's just, you know, not how he was raised. They're all, I think, very strong-willed people. They don't like to give up power easily. You know, Biden is old and he's going to run again. And people who run often keep running. But I think I heard Bob, in effect, say Trump and Nixon were if not singular, distinct, because they actually didn't have as much of the decency that he portrays when you read what he's written, for example, about Gerald Ford, you know, or about Obama at his best, or Jimmy Carter at his best, um, or the Bushes at their best. So, uh, Bob, am I misreading you um, when you base, and, and you said Nixon had this flash, this epiphany of insight when he realized he had destroyed himself. Am I reading you right and saying you think that even though these presidents are very tough guys, they, they wouldn't be in that office if they uh, weren't, that uh, others have more of a sense of basic decency and fair play than, than you see in especially Nixon and Trump? Yes. I, you know, this is a word that's not used much in discussion of American politics, decency, decency. And that goes hand in hand with the idea of restraint, of Somebody, I mean, look at uh, the twenty, the two thousand election. Uh, 
which the Supreme Court declared that George W. Bush was the winner and Gore lost and Gore gave the greatest speech of his life, went out and said, okay, it's decided, that's it. I'm not gonna challenge it. There was a kind of very important, you're, uh, you're landed on the right word of uh, decency here. And uh, Nixon and Trump took, uh, if you want a one sentence summary, took the decency factor out of the presidency. Well, I think when you put so much power in one person's hands, at some time or another, it's going to come down to a question of character. Um, and we've talked about this on our podcast about that when you vote for president, maybe, you know, take a little bit less of a look at your own pocketbook or something like that um, and look a little bit more about, uh, I mean, you've described the presidency as a box of chocolates, right, that you never know what you're going to get. Um, and therefore, you have to have the, the man or woman there that's up to the task, you know, at the, mo at the moment of the unanticipated development, COVID, you know, or something like that. And uh, uh, so, so that's, I think, an important lesson there. Now, in, in, let me follow up on that. You know, at the beginning, talked, I talked about the last line in peril, but at the beginning of the book, um, you talk about the aftermath of January 6th and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is very concerned about instability, not just sort of international instability, but also possibly instability in Trump himself. And he's taking all sorts of, of measures to try to ensure that nothing wild happens. So can you tell us a little bit, tell us that story quickly, may, or not so quickly, and, and then maybe reflect on was this actually legal, what he was doing? Uh, General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, is uh, very concerned that Trump, as president, commander-in-chief, would do something, I mean, even the possibility of using nuclear weapons. And so there's a phone conversation that Milley has with Nancy Pelosi, the then Speaker of the House. And it's stunning. And she says, well, look, uh, General, you know Trump's crazy. And uh, and Millie's saying, well, I'm not going to argue with you on that. And she says, what precautions have you taken? How can we know that uh, the military you know, the ultimate uh, power of nuclear weapons, which a president can order. I mean, lots of secretaries of defense have made this point. The president unilaterally could order the use of nuclear weapons. And uh, there's, there's the only restraint on him is procedure. And that's what Milley in the end does he calls in the people from the Pentagon National Military Command Center uh, who man that communications channel 24 7 that's where the president could call up or come over and say you know here's the, here's the code uh, launch nuclear weapons and what Milley wanted to do is make sure and he calls in the people who do this it's a stunning moment in constitutional history where uh, Milley, who's worried about what he calls the absolute darkest moment of theoretical possibility, that 
Trump could go rogue. And he asks the people who do this 24-7, I want your assurance that procedurally I will be involved in the discussion. And he had them take an oath that they would do that. And that's a, a remarkable uh, moment. Some have criticized Milley. I think, uh, I think what he did is he took the extra precaution that he judged in that moment necessary. He had the Speaker of the House you know, second in line uh, for the presidency saying he's crazy. I'm worried about this. I want some assurances. And so he did this, but this showed the extent to which Milley and Pelosi, you know, two kingpins in our governmental structure said, uh, we're worried. You know, this is so interesting. And I think this goes to questions that we've talked about in this podcast about the 25th Amendment and, and the presidency. You know, the presidency is one person. It's a very binary uh, sort of unit. People talk about the unitary executive, but it's, it's very, the 25th Amendment makes it very binary. Either the president is on or he's off. You know, you, you, can, you can remove him from office under the 25th or at least, you know, suspend his powers and have someone, someone else exercise the powers of the presidency, but you can't do it halfway. Okay, either he's the president or he's not. And and uh, here's an example of, of General Milley trying to sort of make him, you know, 90% the president or something like that. Like, okay. Oh, no, he's, you know, maybe- no, he, he's saying uh, some of the people have criticized Milley saying he was taking away the president's power. He was not. He was saying we have a procedure. I want to be involved. Remember, as chairman of the Joint Chief, he, the Chiefs, by law, he is the primary military advisor to the president. So the person who has this legal status is saying, I want to make sure that that legal status is real. You are the operational people, colonels and one-star generals and admirals, who have this duty, and I want you to promise me that you will take that procedure uh, seriously. And, uh, you know, whether it was an overreaction, it, it, it never, they never took any way, anything away from Trump. Andy, mm-hmm. I, I know we're going to talk about the more general relationship between the one-person presidency and the bureaucracy beneath the presidency and the so-called deep state. I know that's one of the things we're going to talk about, but just to put what Bob has said in a larger historical context, as you and I have said on this episode and many times before, the Constitution has a super strong presidency. It's not like a prime ministerial system where the, the prime minister is the first among equals in a cabinet and works very closely always with the legislature who can unseat him at, at any moment. Um, that's not the way our system works. Um, you can have impeachments where they fail, even though the president doesn't have the confidence of a majority of the legislature. Now, the new thing is nuclear weapons. But just to remind our audience about the deep past of the the constitutional system. So you have James Garfield. He's been shot and he's lingering for 
weeks and the vice president sort of doesn't come forward and kind of who's in charge, Chester A. Arthur. And then you've got Woodrow Wilson, he's incapacitated by a stroke. And, you know, Edith is running, you know, his wife is running the country and not sort of telling people about that. You have other presidents like Calvin Coolidge, who may be clinically depressed. Bob has himself written about Nixon maybe drinking too much in the final days. Well, I mean, it, it was one of his son-in-laws who was so worried about that. And, and uh, the chief of staff, Al Haig, was worried about it. Uh, so it, um, it's not maybe. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, no. And, and right. nuclear weapons ch- changes the whole thing. So, Yes, indeed. I agree with you, Bob, that he wasn't you know, displacing the president. You know, uh, maybe I misspoke when I said he was 90% of the president. But I guess the point here is that you know, the president could be Here's a situation where they're worried that the president is, you know, might be more incapacitated than they can determine, right? That he might do something crazy. Um, so they're not ready to remove him from office on the possibility that he could do something crazy, but they need some kind of of backstop, you know, if, if he does, um, short of the, the 25th Amendment. So he's, General Milley's relying on at least a procedure where he at least gets to you know, say, oh, you know, are you sure you, you want to do this, you know, or something like that. You say he says he's not going to disobey the order if it's given, but he wants to, you know, be in in the loop. So, yes, but, you know, what, what's so important is you go through, you talk about laws and the Constitution, the 25th Amendment. It, it gets down to the, these are kind of moments where a human being has to say, I'm doing X and not Y. And uh, the ultimate protections are, uh, you, you, you can't get it out of the constitution of the laws, but I'm struck by the idea it so much matters who's president and I agree with you, the concentration of power in the presidency has only grown from Nixon on, and and uh, something happens. I mean, we know it in our life. What's the presidency? When when Biden's president, oh, there, there are all these uh, fires in Hawaii. What is the presidency? What is he doing? He has to go there somehow. I mean, as if the president can can help uh, by by going. Uh, so the the human factor in all of this is so much so relevant. If if I may, trying to think of this moment we are in, uh, we have, and if if we can pull back, we have a leadership vacuum in both parties. The uncertainty of Trump, yes, he's running, he's got all the support and so forth. He's, he's facing four trials at this point. Uh, Akil, you particularly know the legal system. And when you are on trial, it is, no matter how tough and strong you think you might be, it is uh, it brings people down, whatever the outcome. And th- this is creates a leadership uncertainty 
In the case of Biden, as you know, all the polls, Democrats say they want somebody else to run. So uh, I, I was talking to somebody I know uh, in the Biden circle two days before Biden announced he was running. And uh, so this is about six weeks ago. And I, ju I just said, what, you know, is it going to be Trump versus Biden? Or is it going to be Biden versus X? Or is it going to be Trump versus Y? And this person who knows as much as anyone, I'm sorry, I can't tell you who it is, but if I did, you'd be floored. And this person said it's going to be X versus Y. Hmm. Meaning hmm. that neither Biden nor Trump's going to make it. Now there's evidence to the contrary, <laughs> both of them. But this is the uncertainty of this. This is the vacuum. This is, uh, there's much to account for when you have all of that power and it's going to be given to somebody or extended. I mean, here are essentially Trump and Biden now both running for their second terms. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost inconceivable, but that's where we are. And so who these people are uh, is critical. You know, it's a very good point that, that you have two, potentially two candidates running for their second terms against each other. That's something that hasn't happened very often, you know, in, in American history. Uh, maybe with like Theodore Roosevelt running against, uh, you know, but, but yeah. Um, but, you know, so that, that's an unusual situation. So that very good point there. You know, what's, what's so interesting, what's the most important thing facing the country right now? And do we have a political process of debate and advertising and campaigning that will address these giant questions like climate change? What is, you know, what is the policy uh, we, we kind of know Biden's policy on climate change. We don't really know Trump's. Uh, how about the inflation problem we have, which is not going away? What are they really going to do about it? My daughter, uh, who's working on her PhD in psychology in California, uh, when asked, uh, you know, what are your friends ta talking about? What are they worried about? She makes a very potent case that what the younger generation is worried about is inequality. And we have created a structure, an economic and other structures and, and where the inequality is staggering and this younger generation, uh, bless them. What you know? What are we going to do about it? Uh, is it is it fixable? Do we have an inherently unfair system? So I'm I'm very at this moment interested in the question of what's 
really worrisome? And do we have a political campaign that connects people to those issues? And sadly, there's not much. Am I too much of an idealist, Akil? Well, Bob, I think there's this deep tension between two things that we've articulated. One, the presidency is a uniquely powerful uniquely dangerous, could end the world, could end the system. You have to have people who are decent and restrained and competent um, and mentally all there, uh, physically. So, so much focus on the character and uh, competence of one person. So there's that. That's the minimal threshold. And then above and beyond the person, there's the platform. What are the ideas that America needs to, um, and the issues that we need to confront. At our best in American history, we've actually been able to kind of bring those two together in presidential campaigns and focus on both the person and the, um, the issues facing America. And there's this real question that you're posing, are we gonna be able to do either of those, much less both going forward? One thought is, you need to focus especially on personality and character for the presidency, maybe more on platform when you think about all the other positions that you're going to be voting on for the House, for the Senate, um, for states, and the like. Um, but you know, it's always a combination of those two things, the, the person which is most important for the presidency, and then the, the larger set of um, platform issues that we have to think about as a country going forward. And you added the generational dimension to all of that. Instinctively, you said, you know, I think what you were, what you were getting at is, well, we got a couple of very old candidates, and what's the younger generation actually really focused on? People like Diana. Yes. Well, I think, you know, I, I guess what, what a lot of this comes down to also, Bob, is the effectiveness of government. You talk about something like climate change or inequality. You know, if, if government is going to address these things, you're going to need some kind of cooperation between the presidency and, you know, Congress um, and with the support of the people. And, of course, the Supreme Court has to stay out of the way uh, when, when, you know, when it can. The problem is that I think that perhaps we, we, and we alluded to this earlier, the party system may be different now than it was even in, let's say, Nixon's time or something like that, when the party, the Republican Party, you know, existed as perhaps a moral entity as well as a, uh, you know, a political one was able to rise to the occasion to, uh, to, to basically kick, you know, their president out. Um, and now they aren't able to do that, perhaps. So um, this is not all un, not not altogether unrelated to questions of character. We should look at is my business, the media. What's our performance? How are we doing? Uh, Catherine Graham, the publisher owner of the Washington Post during Watergate, wrote Carl Bernstein and myself a letter after Nixon resigned, and she said. So you guys did some of the stories, Nixon's gone, uh, quote, now don't start thinking too highly of yourselves. And he said, <laughs> let me give you some advice. And the advice is beware the demon pomposity. The demon pomposity is alive and kicking and living in my business. There's way too much, particularly on cable news, on 
wherever you are on the spectrum of people coming on with this is the way it is, certainty, smugness. People don't like that. And now there's pomposity. Uh, it's not confined just to the media, it's politics. I even think sometimes there's a, a strain of pomposity in academia, right? <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't sell. It is crippling. And in the news media... We have got to find some way to break that habit. It is a giant problem. And Catherine Graham was right, you know, 50 years ago almost, kind of saying, beware the demon pomposity. So uh, before we move on, I just want to, for our listeners from the uh, NJSBA who are interested in getting the continuing legal education, I want to read you the code now. The code for this episode is UNION, U-N-I-O-N, the word UNION, um, lower, all lowercase. That's the code that you will need to get your continuing legal education. So you, you mentioned there's a pomposity you 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 fault in the among journalists, um, among other um, areas in society now for part of our problems. Um, would you say that type of journalism that you've practiced, the investigative journalism, um, the you know the fact-based journalism, if you will, um, is alive and well? Is it threatened? Um, is it uh, re- is it different? You know. In many ways, I mean, obviously, you weren't the first investigative reporter, but you know, I think in many ways you you changed it, um, you and, and Carl Bernstein and others. So, talk about that, if you will. Well, all all it's been being tested, and how are we uh, going to reform ourselves? Uh, the the internet has just driven created a new media culture, which is impatience and speed. Give it to me in a sentence. Give it to me in a word. I had the luxury of time to dig, try to dig into things and spend months or even years. And this, this whole drive in the media, you see it on television, people being, what's going to happen? Tell me the future. And we all know the future's unknown, particularly in American politics and national security these days. Uh, Surprises, I'm pretty confident, are coming. And, And so how do you find, settle people down, give the nation a Valium in a way to say, you know, this hyper- uh, back and forth, screaming, the certainty, the uh, the simplification is is not uh, informing people. Uh, Akil in law if it's in law school, if someone were assigned, say, an exam to write for an hour on something, and they turned in one sentence mm. or one word, you would what? You know, that isn't how we explain things, but we've created that atmosphere, and uh, it's a giant problem. 
Well, Bob, Bob is very interesting, I think, special in this regard, because he's maybe the most famous journalist that there's ever been. And from the word jour in, in, in French, in, um, uh, news is about what's happening now, what's happening every day. Um, Bob is always interested when, when in, in class, he'd walk in and ask the students, so, so what's, what's the news? What, what's, what's going on today? So there's that. And he, you know, and he has that just in his bones. What are people talking about today? What's today's? And and now we're not just today, but this hour, this this um, minute, this second. Okay, and that's just an acceleration of news. But he's also, even though he's all that, um, Andy, as you said at the very beginning, he's he's very old-fashioned in a certain way. He's a, um, a book person. He's written twenty two books, at least fifteen. You know, at least number one New York Times bestsellers, and these books. You know, take a lot of time to produce, um, to research, to write, to edit. They take some time actually to, to, to read. We haven't actually talked about some of them. And I know we're going to talk about, for example, his book on the court, The Brethren, which we haven't um, done yet, and talk about leaks and other things. We've been talking about the presidency and maybe even the Congress, Pelosi and others, but we, we will come to the court soon enough. But, but Bob is old school that way. Um, and Andy, you and I are too. You love Robert Cairo's books, you know, and, and I try to write books. And that's in some tension, Bob is telling us, with the modern culture, which is not as focused on, on these larger chunks of meaning and, and contribution. Woodward is both, and he's unique in this way, I think, a journalist and an historian. Journalism is you know, sometimes thought of the, the first draft of history. And in Bob's work, you actually really see that. And he goes back. What will happen to the book um, as we in, in our internet world? Um, so that's an interesting question. How so do I think we communicate? What's the best way? Now, the podcast world, which we're participating in now, books, television, newspapers, online, X, old Twitter, what's the best way to communicate? And I think it's very much up in the air. Of course, you know, Bob, you know, wrote this together with Scott Armstrong, wrote this uh, seminal work, The Brethren, uh, which really, you know, got behind the scenes in, in with over a hundred different sources, um, you know, interviews of, of people that worked on the court, whether they were clerks or, or justices themselves, a really remarkable book. Um, do you think that such a book could be written today? Yeah, it's of course it's it's possible, but they've clamped down a great deal. But you know, there was uh, the leak of the Dobbs abortion decision, which I think was a really important story. Told you a lot about the court, about uh, the divisions, the ideological divisions uh, in the court or among clerks or staff or wherever it came from, uh, that somebody would actually hand that out. I think that's important. But what, what happened in the Brethren, now this was 1979 when it came out, the last sentence of the Brethren is the center was in control. The center of the court, not the left of Marshall and Douglas and Brennan, not the right of Berger and Blackman, but a coalition in the center of the justices. And I was talking to one of the current justices recently who made the point, this justice said, oh, 
how, how much better it would have been for this court to have that center in control. And uh, I, I, I think that's really true. And when uh, it's, it's been published, and I've said before, the Brethren, the spark was set by Justice Stewart, who told me about the nature of the deep hostilities in the court toward Chief Justice Berger. And uh, after, and then we talked to 140 law clerks, all kinds of other people, and five of the sitting justices assisted us one way or another. And after the book came out, uh, I ran into Justice Stewart uh, at the Kennedy Center, and I just asked him, I said, I never got your review of the Brethren. And he looked at me and said, there's a lot of truth in that book. Quote, too much truth. <laughs> and we pivoted and walked away. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an interesting question. Too much truth. Yes, sometimes, uh, like in the intelligence world, you could have too much truth about sources and methods or maybe about somebody's personal life, but it's it's an interesting concept, and particularly that Justice Stewart would uh, finger it as too much truth. In other words, uh, the suggestion that even though he started it, as he knew, you got to a point where too much was revealed. I don't think so at all. Uh, I think that it uh, was important, I think, as we quoted Chief Justice Berger saying, no institution, including the Supreme Court, should be free from in-depth examination. You know, it's uh, just listening to you reminds me of something we've talked about on our podcast, which is the, uh, the Constitutional Convention um, and the fact that the proceedings were secret at the time, but afterwards, people were free to, to talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, maybe they didn't talk, you know, about you know uh, about it in a way to sort of get have a gotcha about any particular individual, but it was important to hear the you know how they arrived at the the final result. And I think that that's analogous to the court, where you know we you wouldn't want necessarily the deliberations that the justices are are having about a particular case to be like televised, you know, live or something like that, you know, where, so because no one would feel free to throw an idea out there, you know, or something like that, but to know the general procedure and, and what's right and wrong with the court system, I think is good for the country. Well, I think Um, the leak of the Dobbs opinion thought it was really good for the court and for the country and uh, served a real public service. Okay, this is what they're thinking of doing, taking away a 50-year-old right that women had and putting it out there. And uh, I don't know, we don't know how much debate there was between that first 
draft and what eventually was released, but it really didn't change at all, did it, Akil? um, Not very much. Do you have any sense, you know, from sources or even just your your gut as a, you know, as the the world's greatest investigative reporter, where the leak came from, a justice, a clerk, a staffer, an accident from the left, from the right? Any sense at all, you know, from your kind of using your kind of, you know, your your reporter's nose and any, you know, um, sources that you may have, even if you can't share, where you think it came from? Because we're kind of still all in the dark about that. Yeah, but that, but that's fine. Uh, I mean, what's important is so many people had access, including the printers, including. Uh, staff on the court that you've never heard of, clerks, justices, and again, I I think it's not intentional transparency on the part of the Supreme Court to make these things available to so many people, and I'm sure they've uh, clamped down and put the fear of God in people, but that didn't hurt. I mean, well, just I, in a, to, to follow up, just... Um, Potter Stewart actually approached you early on in the Brethren, and that's why it's kind of ironic no, I that. Yeah, okay, approached. okay, but 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 you had connection to justices. Is it conceivable to you, you know, having you know covered the court in in, in an historical way, that the leaker could have been actually a justice, or do you think that's inconceivable? No, nothing's inconceivable. Could have been a justice. Could have been. Uh, a justice saying to a clerk, I, you know, I want you to leak this or, you know, I don't call it a leak. I call it just give this out and let's let the public see uh, what the plan is. Uh, no, I, we are much better off. I think for a moment, uh, earlier in the year, Carl Bernstein and I were in London at a conference and there was a woman there who represented Alexei Navalny, who's the dissident who Putin has jailed and kept in jail and so forth. And somehow Navalny got copies of all the president's men in the final days. And he actually went public saying he got these in the underground and read them and was stunned about the amount of freedom we had as journalists in the United States and how saddened and angry he is that it does not exist in Russia today. And I think often, quite frankly, of Navalny in that cell by himself with an occasional book or his thoughts and just the idea of that oppression versus the freedom we have in this country. It's really liberating. I think it's an essential moral component of our strength. So you'd like to see more leaks from the court. It may not happen, but you think that would be better aggressive reporting to find out what's going on behind the scenes. What, Akil, what did you think when you first read the opinion that had been 
provided. Um, we had episodes actually on that, um, uh, Bob, in, in, pre in previous podcasts, and I wasn't surprised at all, and here's why, and we've talked about it, because every four years, we have a presidential election and, an, and national conventions, and our two parties actually not only pick party leaders, but commit themselves to platforms. This is what we talked about before. It's a two-party system, and they're presidential nominees, but they're also platforms, and one of our great parties, you at least early on were registered Republican, Bob, but one of our two great parties, the Republican Party, for eight, nine presidential cycles has said very explicitly, Roe must go, Roe must go. We are opposed to Roe versus Wade. I think this is good for America that the parties are telling us openly every four years what they really believe, and we should listen to them when they when they keep saying the same thing again and again and again. So. I wasn't shocked that once the Republican Party has had put on the court several new nominees, and I can count, just like everyone else, Dobbs didn't uh, surprise me in the, the slightest as a political scientist. As a law person, I know that there's a big difference between uh, those who focus mainly on precedent and, folk, and those who focus mainly on the Constitution itself, the so-called originalists. And so, so Dobbs didn't really surprise me. And Bob, you're right. We didn't see the Dobbs draft, the leak, and we didn't really see much change between that leaked version and the final version. By the way, you mentioned that, uh, that the platforms, and of course, the Republicans did not have a platform under uh, and when Donald Trump ran for re-election. Um, which I think says something. Yeah, it's uh, bad. It's bad. too much about yeah. one person, you know, and, and the supreme leader, the, the Fuhrer. That, that's actually unfortunate when we don't have platforms. But, but, Akil, you know this so well. The Roe decision itself, written by Harry Blackman uh, at the Mayo Clinic Library, mm -hmm. uh, is a doctor's opinion. It mm -hmm. is sailed by not just people from the right, but from the left. And it's, it was not a, it was, a, it, it was a doctor's opinion mm -hmm. and not a constitutionally based decision. And that, that's a, sh and that made it assailable. Yes. Much more vulnerable because it didn't um, connect its intuitions strongly to the text of the Constitution, the history behind its adoption and amendment. My brother Vic, and you, and you've done him many favors over the years. He sends his regards. He, um, he he's left the University of Illinois um, as dean, uh, but he still has an affiliation there. And you kindly, you know, gave a talk actually about presidents. In fact, at the University of Illinois College of Law at, at Vic's invitation, but. Too little, and so I had to do some homework. <laughs> no, you were. It was epic, and it was about presidents. And um, but Vic clerked for Harry Blackman, and we loved Harry Blackman. But that opinion, I think your word was assailable. It may decide the, the next presidential election. Also, it's so interesting that you that you hail the leak of the of the Dobbs draft. I mean, from the point of view of our podcast, obviously it was a boon because we got to analyze it. But not only that. <laughs> But we actually proposed something. We had an episode called The Dobbs Deal where we talked about, okay, this is this is out there. Here's what can be done before the opinion is issued. 
that it can actually turn this into a positive thing. So it didn't happen, but you know, uh, oh, well, the, that's a very interesting, um, you, yes, a compromise. compromise. Mm -hmm. uh, it okay. didn't happen right. except for the possibility that a clerk in Justice Kavanaugh's chambers, perhaps the justice himself, may have heard, who knows, our thought about the importance of a right to travel, that even if abortion is going to be limited within Mississippi or within Texas or what have you, um, that if there were a right to travel out of state to get a legal abortion elsewhere, that would be a very, very important feature that would make this much less of a, of a body blow to a woman's reproductive rights than it would be if Texas can actually keep you chained up and, and, and not let you leave Texas, for example, which people are talking about today. You know, Bob, you, so you wrote this landmark book on the court, The Brethren, and you've written, you know, 22 books, so you're not above coming back to a subject that you've, you know, addressed before, um, but you never really came back to the court. Um, any, any reason why? Uh, well, you know, first of all, the impact of the brethren was uh, clerks have to sign confidentiality agreements. It was a tightening, so it would be the hardest of our targets. But I think um, important as the court is, and if you know these justices that Trump appointed and others, I mean they've they they've got. 20, 30 years of decisions. Uh, it may turn out to be uh, Donald Trump's greatest legacy. But I think the real threat, the real worry uh, is in the national security field. I think the Ukraine, Ukraine war is much more uh, complex much much more consequential than people realized it may be my next book. I think it's that uh, important. But they're in the course of reporting, there are lots of shocking things. Uh, let me cite one that I published in uh, one of my Trump books, which no one ever talked about or kind of, it, it didn't raise any controversy, and, and that is about the Trump presidency uh, early on. Uh, General Mattis, James Mattis, was the Secretary of Defense and was at odds with Trump on, on a number of things. But Mattis, just in the practical world of being Secretary of Defense, went a number of times to the National Cathedral by himself to pray that he would not have to use nuclear weapons to respond to a nuclear attack from North Korea. And they have these very top secret event conferences if North Korea launched launches a missile and it's possible it's going to reach the United States. They don't know uh, when it's launched. And uh, he would, uh, Mattis would have to use nuclear weapons to destroy North Korea if this happened. And uh, it would, would no doubt be 
at this time, Trump's response. So Mattis went up to the National Cathedral and thought of Lincoln. President Lincoln said at one point, you get into these awful moments of decision and you all you can do is fall on your knees and pray. And Mattis, here the Secretary of Defense, is in the National Cathedral alone, pondering the world and the responsibility that vested in him as Secretary of Defense, uh, and praying that it does not come to that moment, because that would unleash God knows what happened. That image stuck, struck with me and stuck with me and of here's the Secretary of Defense on his knees in the National Cathedral saying, God help me that I don't have to do my duty. There's a lot that was scary about the Trump years, of course, and but this is not limited to, to Trump as you're as you're pointing out, you know, the Ukraine war rages on. Um, and of course, this week, as we tape this, you know, uh, the leader of North Korea is visiting Russia. Um, and and God knows what's going to come out of that. I mean, you have exactly. Sort of the- I mean, two. And here's Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, saying uh, he approves of pre- President uh, Putin's sacred war in Ukraine. It it is a war of territorial conquest that we have not seen the likes of which since 1939 when Hitler invaded Poland. So this is not just something happening. This is a, and if Putin gets away with this, you change the whole, I mean, he's already changed the notion of some sort of stable world order. Well, certainly there's been a realignment. I mean, you now, you now, I mean, George Bush's phrase, the axis of evil is kind of coming to, to uh, fruition. If you think about an alliance among, you know, Iran, North Korea, and, uh, and, and Russia, I think they're, they're calling it the, the, the axis of the sanctioned, you know, these nations that have sanctions against them. Um, and uh, that's a, and and of course NATO was, realigning was, as well. This axis of evil was Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, was it not? Yes, indeed. But I'm talking about now, you know, what we may see a new a new axis of evil. evil. Um, but um, you, so you say that this may be the 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 target of a new book that you are the subject of a new book. How what would your approach be to find out what happened and why? Uh-huh. Books, obviously, like books because you can spend a lot of time, you can cover a lot of territory, lots of points of view, and uh, it it gets you much closer than the internet or the news stories about what 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 went on. What re- I mean, these are emotional. My wife, Elsa Walsh, as you know, she writes about emotional truth and emotions really impact these large political and military and 
just any any decision. I think you're right that this is a, a consequential war and, and merits, you know, Bob, the Bob Woodward treatment. <laughs> um, and actually, this is big news for our for our audience that they have an, that they may have another Bob Woodward book to, to look forward to. I know that that's that's important. Um, but of course, perhaps at some point you might retire or be retired or whatever. Um, who's the next Bob Woodward? I take seriously this Catherine Graham's worry about the demon pomposity, and uh, it's it's. Pomposity is very unsavory, and there's no, I, uh, as you know, I have time, I have great assistance, I have my wife, Elsa, who has edited 19 of my books, she's a great editor, she will look at 10 pages and say, no, no, you need to start here on page four sometimes page nine and then uh, and say you've got uh, what she calls conceptually underbrush that's not uh, absolutely necessary and that's that's quite true so I'm shielded the country now is not shielded I think that we are who's going to be the next president is it X versus Y, is it X or Y? Who, are, who is X, who is Y? We've been infused with uncertainty on a scale that I've never seen or imagined. You know, you, you, you mentioned uh, something in, in your book uh, at the end, In Peril, that, uh, that I found notable. You said that neither Trump nor Biden uh, agreed to be interviewed for the book. Right. Um, and of course, that's unusual for your books. You've, you've usually been able to access the, the presidents. Um, and then we also have, you know, under Trump, this, you know, not using email and tearing up papers and, and this and that. So are you worried that the, that the historical record is going to become more and more bare? with this withdrawal from access to journalism? It, it's a good question. Yeah, of course I worry about, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big thing. But I'm also struck, I mean, this is not, by, I'm very much struck by the idea of things we don't understand. May I give an example? Please. Uh, General Ray Odierno, when he was Army Chief of Staff, he'd been, uh, he, Odierno died about a year ago, but he had been the commander in Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, was Army Chief of Staff, and he would invite me, so this is 10, 12 years ago, to come talk to the new generals. And then, believe it or not, the Army has about 100 to 110 new one-star generals every year. I mean, it's a production line because they bring the new generals to Washington to meet with people and you know, have seminars. And so they he asked me to come talk about the media, and I would come and talk about the media. And then he would get a big bear of a man. And he'd say, 
generals. And he had four stars on here, and they were all one stars. So there's a kind of, you know, generals. Well, he's not mocking them, but he's making it clear he can talk to them as the boss or one of the bosses. And so what's the job of the army? And almost every hand goes up and he calls on one. General, what's your answer? And the general said, job of the army is to recruit, equip, and train soldiers to fight and win wars. And everyone kind of nods and now Odierno. Yeah. And then Odierno said, Okay, generals, what's the second job of the army? And they're all looking around, kind of, second job of the army. Did they ever tell, you know, they're confused. But, uh, did they do you know what the second job is? It's, it's blank. No one knew. And Odierno then said, said uh, generals, second job of the army. And it may be the first job of the army is to prevent war. To prevent war. Now, think about that. I mean, here are these generals, new generals, and so forgot that. Right. I mean, it's easy to get caught up in the technology and the and the you know how are we going to and the strategy and that sort of thing, but ultimately. It's it's the uh, it's the Department of Defense, not the Department of War. Yeah. Um, so yes, um, what's the job of the journalist? Uh, to patiently try to find out what really happened and why, and to find the witnesses, participants, contemporaneous notes, and documents that support a first draft of, or second draft of history, uh, and not the, the kind, this driven, emotional people deciding facts on the basis of somehow, well, you know, I kind of like, or I feel good about something rather than, you know, facts Sometimes you have to understand that facts don't make you feel good because they're they're hard and harsh. You know, the last time that we uh, that we that we taped an episode with you, we titled it "The Purpose of the Truth," um, which uh, came out of a question that was asked in the journalism seminar that you taught. Um, so, do you feel that? Um, and I think you started off the podcast in this way. I think you, you said that in some ways the truth is in danger. Um, do you see, you know, a path to success? Do you have words to our country to, that, uh, to help us along the path back to the truth? Well, a lot of it rests with the news media and a, you know, and I don't know how you straighten this out, uh, but I think we're further from the truth than last time we talked. The similarities between Nixon and Trump 
are so central to understanding the last 50 years. May I read something from the Nixon tapes? Uh, You know, he had the secret taping system, and this didn't come out until much later after he resigned. Uh, And so this is Nixon in the Oval Office with Henry Kissinger, his Secretary of State, on December 14, 1972. So this is six weeks after Nixon's won a stunning re-election, 49 states. This is a moment of triumph for Nixon. And let me quote directly from the section of the tape. And so Nixon says to Kissinger, remember we're going to be around and outlive our enemies. And also never forget The press is the enemy. The press is the enemy. The press is the enemy. The establishment is the enemy. The professors are the enemy. The professors are the enemy. Write that on a blackboard a hundred times and never forget it. That's Nixon in revenge. That's Trump. Also, he could say that. Write that on the blackboard a hundred times. What we need to write on the blackboard a hundred times is what Gerald Ford finally realized after he pardoned Nixon, and I did interviews with Ford, but, but Ford realized his job as president was to find the national interest, not the interest of individuals for revenge or for a political party or for an interest group, but the national interest, you know, we, we had a blackboard here. We could put out, put up the uh, issues that need to be addressed or solved in national security, policing in the communities and the cities, health care, the educational system, those four basics. And uh, suppose somebody addressed that and came out and said, I'm running for president. These are the things I'm going to do in these areas that affect your lives, rather than this kind of angry interchange that I, it's it's fallen, it's become a kind of automatic pilot. And uh, who can kind of pull us out of that haze we've fallen into that's so far removed from what really matters to people? Well, Baudrillard, with words to words for our country to live by. Thank you, thank you so much, Bob. For this was just, you know, Amazing. what a treasure you are, Amazing. and uh, yeah, thank you, wisdom for our audience. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.